beautiful people, I'm Jessie Galvin and this is the Open Heart Rebellion, a place where we ignite our potential and awaken to the truth inside each of us. Joining me today is the wonderful master yogi Simon Borg-Olivia. With over 40 years experience teaching yoga, working as a researcher and as a physiotherapist, Simon has this incredible wealth of knowledge and embodied experience on the profound ways that yoga transforms the way we live, the way we love, the way we laugh, the way we think, and obviously the way we move. So in this episode, he shares his incredible story into yoga, the keys to happiness, this beautiful lesson he learned from his mother when he was a young boy, and enjoying your life, how to enjoy your life, how to stay healthy, and how to stay happy. And you'll hear he really encapsulates this as a way of life, which he shares in this episode, which is wonderful to hear. And we dive into what true freedom means, what it means for your mind, your body, your spirit, and how to expand the love in your heart so that it can encapsulate and consume your whole body. And this episode is really a journey back home into oneness. So if you enjoy this podcast, why not share it with someone who'd benefit from the work? You can always take a screenshot and tag me at jessie underscore galvin. I absolutely love hearing your takeaways, what's landing or shifting for you as we go through the episodes. Now this is a free resource, so reviews really help people to find us organically. So you can also head over to Apple Podcasts and share your experience of the Open Heart Rebellion over there. So before we dive in, let's just take a deep breath. Just land into your body. Give yourself this time today. Breathe in. And let it go. (sighs) Thank you for being here. And now we'll take time to explore life as an open heart rebel for Simon Borg-Olivia. Let's dive in. What I'd like to start with is for those those people that don't know you, just to hear a bit about your journey. You've been teaching for a long time. You've experience working with some of the great grandfathers of yoga and I'd love to just for you to share a bit about your journey into your magic and into the way that you now move through the world. Okay well I I guess I've been very very lucky I'll give a quick summary of of my life with this type of thing. Um, When I was six years old my father taught me how to swim underwater he was a very good free diver so he taught me about breath control. Before that my mother bless her She taught me about yama and niyama. And, you know, she taught me about the essence of love and unconditional love. She taught me about the idea that happiness is a choice, not something you wait for. And these were things that stayed with me all my life. You know, this is a very, very important essence of yoga. My father at six taught me how to breathe. At eight years old, I traveled from Southampton to Sydney, Australia. And on the way, the boat, the six-week cruise, stopped in Southampton. And on Hops, a family. Uh, the father, his name is Basil Brown, and he was a Rhodesian at the time. Now Zimbabwe, no? uh, he was a Rhodesian uh, athlete, and he had been taught, I think, some special Indian yoga. And he mastered these kriyas, internal movements, and he taught me them. And because they all require holding your breath for long periods of time, I could do them. His son and his daughter and my sister, none of them could do them because they couldn't hold the breath. But he showed me these things, how to move your internal organs, how to expand the chest so you suck up your internal organs and then roll the abdomen. And it was something that I liked and I enjoyed. I did it all my teenage life. And until till now, I still do it. And then uh, 
in my teenage years, I started to explore forest culture. And so one of my favorite activities as a young foresting person in the Kuringai Chase, the national park where I used to live, was I would uh, try and be like an indigenous person. I had contact with lovely indigenous people all my life from Australia, amazing, amazing culture, very, very underrated, very, very powerful, and probably the oldest surviving culture in the world, you know, really amazing. And they um, uh, inspired me to walk in the forest, but without clothes. Because the Australian bush is very, very harsh, and I didn't want to hurt the trees in the forest. So I figured if I didn't wear clothes, I wouldn't just bush bash. I would actually be able to weave between the trees. And it became like these wonderful animal movements that stayed with me to the day, and I really enjoyed them, this idea of moving like an animal in the forest. Then at 17 years old, I had a Tibetan Lama. This man just approached me. He asked me to come to his house. Turned out he'd been in Tibet for 20 years and just came to live in Australia. And he taught me the essence of tantric yoga and uh, yogic philosophy. And around that time, he inspired me to start my first proper yoga classes, which were Satchananda Yoga. And But the Satchananda Yoga was this very beautiful spiritual yoga, but not much uh alignment precision etc so i find myself doing things like being in a twist they didn't tell me press down your foot or do this or tighten that so i was just twisting and going what for why am i here i don't understand this i don't know the purpose of this what's the purpose some years before that i'd been told about uh meditation and uh yoga and i'd had these interesting uh high school experiences where we were learning about the nervous system and they told us that the nervous system has got two main parts the autonomic nervous system which is like your automatic unconscious nervous system and the somatic nervous system which is like your conscious nervous system and they said the somatic nervous system can be controlled by the conscious mind but the autonomic or automatic nervous system cannot be controlled by the conscious mind and then in brackets it said except by some Indian yogis. And I went, oh, who are these strange people who can control their unconscious? And around the same time, I got shown a picture of this man sitting pretty much naked in the snow with some of these mountains, presumably Himalaya behind him. And the person who showed me the picture said, this is a yogi who's meditating. He's doing meditation. He's doing yoga. So I got the impression that one, meditation and yoga were the same thing and that meditation and yoga were very difficult because it's one thing to sit still but how can you be still and relaxed and still warm enough to sit naked in the snow then not so long after that i noticed that in the late 70s early 80s because you know i was born in 1960 so this has all happened in my teenage years uh, by the late 70s early 80s everyone i met had just taken up meditation I'm going, how can they do this? These guys are much cleverer than I thought. Meditation's so difficult. How can they do that? Then I realized they're not really meditating. Most people who talk about meditation are just sitting still, trying to still their mind while doing something quite boring, being bored, being numb in an uncomfortable position, getting cold. That's what most people do. It's not really med meditation. It's the art of sitting in a very cold room and getting very warm or sitting in a very hot room and staying cool and being in a very dull, calming environment, but not being bored, still being excited somehow. 
and having this manifestation on the inside, which has nothing to do with the outside necessarily. It's your own creation. And so it really threw me when I realized that other people were doing what they thought was meditation. I realized meditation is very misunderstood in the Western world. Then I started my, my yoga classes and realized these yoga classes were not what they're all jacked up to be. Sitting in a twist, just looking around the room, wondering why I'm doing it when it didn't feel like anything. It was boring. So I then took upon fitness classes. And, I, and for about two or three years, I went to two aerobics classes a day, did circuit training, did rock climbing, did fencing, did uh, you know gymnastics and uh, all sorts of stuff like this. But I got too excited. I'm an excitable sort of person. So in my first fencing class, uh, I got too excited, tried to do an Errol Flynn, and someone actually stabbed me in my shoulder, it pierced my skin, it went, went right through the protection. And I thought, well, that's not for me. In my first Taekwondo class, I kicked too high and dislocated my buttocks. How I did that, I don't know, but I was in pain for weeks. In my very first gymnastics class, I managed to break my neck. I was doing a backflip. It seemed easy at the time. I said, I've never done a backflip before. They said, it's no problem. Just run backwards and then throw yourself up in the air and we'll catch you by the hips and flip you over. So I ran backwards to the left, but they were backwards to the right. So I threw myself in the air and landed straight in my head and broke my neck. Luckily, it didn't damage my spinal cord, although I couldn't feel my fingers for quite some time. And even now it's very, very stiff. I didn't actually notice it was a full crush fracture of C5 for another 10 years, but that was my first foray into gymnastics. And then in aerobics, which I was persisting for a while, I was okay until my knees started to really go and I got shin splints, massively painful. And my teacher said to me, you know, you can't run anymore, Simon, because it's just not good. It's hard floor. So they had me standing in the corner while all the girls are running around because most of it was girls classes in the early 1980s. And so I had to stand in the corner and just roll my fists up and down with my knees bent. It was just very, very boring. And I said, is there anything you can do to help me? She said, come to my stretch class. And I went to her stretch class and she showed me what in yoga they call supta virasana, where you bend back your knees, lie back between your legs. Most people found it uncomfortable, but for some obscure reason, it helped my knees. And I said, this is amazing. My knees are better. Do you have more exercises like this? And she said, come to my stretch class. So I came and it was a gym and it was a stretching class. That's all. And then one day she had to be away. So the gym, realizing that to get a fill-in teacher, got an Iyengar yoga teacher to come along and take her place. And the first thing she did was she put me in this twist that I'd been in in the Sachananda yoga class, you know, four or five years earlier. And instead of just leaving me there, she says, now, push down with your foot, pull your navel and your right arm to the right, push your pubic bone, and your knee to the left, then anchor the sitting bones and expand the belly, chest and throat, and then breathe into your abdomen. And I go far out, that changes everything. This is incredible. And so then I, I got excited and I started a course, which was actually a Japanese yoga course. It was three hours a, a, a morning, five mornings a week, 5.30 to 8.30 every morning run by predominantly Japanese people. It was Okido Yoga, by, taught by Masahiro Okisan. And I had a, a Japanese policeman, was my main teacher, Takao Nakazawa, and Hirotashi Sakai. And oh, they were wonderful people. But also on Tuesday, Thursdays, they had Iyengar Yoga by this wonderful woman called Eve Rusbowski. And she taught me this really cool alignment stuff. But the Japanese dudes, they were teaching me run with psychedelic tights through Hyde Park, hug the trees, 
and then kick your knees up high going and people would look at us coming off the buses and train but it seemed like a cool thing to do at the time i really enjoyed it you know we would uh, run into the park and jump into the lake and crazy things and that was a teacher training course so unbeknownst to me at the end of doing it for essentially about two years because i kept repeating the course the um the lady who was the Iinga teacher says we need someone to teach a class in Newtown because the teacher can't do it anymore. Who wants to do it? And I had no interest in teaching. And she said, Simon, is there any reason why you can't do it? And I went, uh, she said, it's your class. I go, oh, and I didn't want to teach, but it was thrust upon me. And I started teaching. This was like in the early 1980s. At the time then, I met a fantastic teacher called Professor Bimdev. And Professor Bimdev was in 1972, the gold medalist for yoga in India. And he was incredible, and I, I still am in contact with him, and now he's in his late 70s. But he would do wonderful things like put a metal bar, which is like the thickness of your thumb, at about two meters or three meters long, and he would push it against his throat, other end against the wall, and then breathe in a way that brought intra-abdominal pressure to his throat and bend the iron bar with his throat. And that was pretty cool, and I've got Chinese teachers who can do the same now, but what he did was more amazing was he put the iron bar, another one, because our first one was bent, on his eyeball and then brought his intra-abdominal pressure, brought it up the chakras into his throat, then into intraocular pressure. And with pressure from his eyeball, he could bend iron. This blew me out. And I started helping him on stage. I went to private lessons to do pranayama. By this stage, I knew all of the yoga postures in light on yoga because I'd been very keen, very enthusiastic, doing six to eight hours a day. And you know, even Iyengar would say that if you start in your early 20s and you're diligent, you can learn all the postures within three to five years. And I pretty much had 90% of all the postures in his book within three to five years. So uh, Professor Bim said, I will teach you. He said, do you know Asana? And I said, yeah. He said, which ones do you know? And I say, lots. And he said, show me your Asana. He, he sat for three hours. I did every Asana that I could do. And he said, hmm, okay, I won't teach you Asana. I'll teach you Pranayama. So he started teaching me very cool Pranayama, which was this stuff about learning about intra-abdominal pressure and how to create essentially valsalva maneuvers inside your body in a safe way. The sorts of things that weightlifters use to lift up heavy weights. And that he would do also, he would lie on a bed of nails, put a concrete block on him, 60, 80 kilos, we'd smash it up with a sledgehammer, or he'd lie on, uh, on the floor with a big ramp on top of him and have a 10-ton steamroller roll over him. He was incredible. He still is amazing. You know, he could bend uh, iron around his whole body, hold cars back with his hands. And I love him. And then right after that, I met Shandor Remete, who was an incredible man. And I learned with him for many years. And uh, he taught me so much. And he was a main student of Iyengar. And he sent me to Iyengar at the end of 1985. And then that was the first of 25 trips to India. And I studied with Iyengar about seven or eight times from the mid 80s to the late 90s. But about 1990, I realized that I didn't really understand. I thought the yoga was working and I was teaching and I was having lots of students in the late 80s. There wasn't any yoga teachers. I had 60 to 80 people in each class and I actually made quite a good living out of it. And um, I realized that not everyone actually was benefiting from yoga. I was benefiting, but not all my problems were being helped. And I thought I've got to do something to 
understand why. I noticed that half the people who came to their first class never came back. And I always had a full class because a new set of people come. Everyone wanted to try it. So I thought maybe I don't understand enough. So I went back to university. I'd already finished a, a bachelor's in uh, biology and a master's in molecular biology. And so I went back to do a, a bachelor of applied science in physiotherapy. So now I'm a physiotherapist and as a physiotherapist, I teach exercise-based physiotherapy, but depending on who I'm talking to, I call it yoga. Or as the years went on, Towards the end of the 1990s, I met uh, a, a Chinese teacher, and the Chinese teacher was uh, William Chung, who was the junior, no, he was the senior student, while Bruce Lee was the junior student of Yip Man. And so he taught me for a few years, and his students taught me, and I learned this uh, Wing Chun type movements. It was, it was good, it was fun, but it didn't totally resonate with me, and after a while, we didn't talk. And then some years later, I met Master Zhenhua Yang, who I still you know, resonate with, and I've been with him for about 15 years. And his grandfather, who's now 118 years old, is the last of the lineage of the bodyguards of the Emperor of China. And what struck me was that he does also these things of you know, sticking the iron bars in his throat, just like Professor Bin did. And I realized that many of the exercises that he was teaching me, this Chinese man, were the same as what the Indian man was teaching me and the same as what the Tibetan Lama had taught me when I was 17. Then I realized that yoga is an Indian word, but it's representing something which actually doesn't belong to India. It's global. And so then I also explored many other cultures along the way, including cultures from, I had, uh, I was taught for a while by the, um, what's he called? The, the national champion of uh, Thai kickboxing. He just retired as a national champion. He only gave me a couple of lessons, but honestly, he taught me how to teach without words. But his teaching was not like I do with clicks and visual. He was hit, hitting. At the end of it, I felt like I learned heaps, but I was in total pain. And he really was amazing. I, I learned a lot in a very short time from him. But around all of it, I came to this understanding the most common things with all the cultures that I learned from was this sense that we're all connected as one. I have a passion for physics as well. And so physics at its ultimate first state is basically like philosophy. It says that the essence of everything is consciousness and that consciousness to be effective has to be loving consciousness. And if we all recognize we're all connected as one, which I believe it's easy to sort of show people that, you know, I mean, you were connected to your mother, I was connected to my mother, and they'll actually tell you, mothers will tell you, no, not just related, actually joined as one. And if mother and child are joined, we're all joined, maybe a little bit separated in time and space. But the recognition that we're all connected as one, as one community, one loving family is the essence of the yoga of all over the world. But to really appreciate it, you have to appreciate that if you're trying to share good energy and loving information with the people around you, to appreciate that you're connected, to appreciate that we really all are one family, the only way to communicate with people is lovingly. You can't shout at someone to make a point. It's helpful if you share a meal, give them good energy, also talk sweetly. So it's about sharing good energy and loving information. 
but people don't have a model for that. So the ultimate model for learning how to appreciate the world, for recognizing that we're all connected as one, is to begin within yourself. And so all my practices now are geared towards sharing good energy and loving information inside myself. And I do that by encouraging the flow of blood, which is like the carrier of the good energy, but keeping heart rate very, very low, because when the heart rate increases, it stimulates stress. And then I also keep the, a dominance of the parasympathetic nervous system, that state we call the rest, rejuvenation, relaxation, regeneration mode, which helps immunity, reproduction, digestion, and uh, regeneration in general. So by keeping a dominant parasympathetic state with a really enhanced circulation, it means you have lots of energy and you're really calm and happy all the time. And that's the type of practice that I do. And I do it in a way where as a byproduct, but not as an aim, I stay strong without feeling tense. I get flexible and keep mobile without doing strong stretching. I also have um, a sense that my body is intelligent, but I'm keeping a minimal thinking process going on. And I'm also getting lots of energy, hardly breathing at all. Because things like stretch, tension, excess breathing, excess heart rating, excess thinking, all block the movement of good energy and loving information inside your body. So much in there. What I love that you, yoga is not just the asana and that's so misunderstood often in the West with these practices that people come from a high stress life and then we move into a high stress yoga class and we're continuing in this state of fight or flight and busyness and not given the space to drop back in to that connection, to that deeper connection, to our center, to our oneness. Um, so I would love to hear of all of the lessons, of all of the mixture, of all the philosophies of your journey together, what would you say would be the biggest lesson to live yoga off the mat, to live in day-to-day -day life, to take all of this, how do we tune back into that, to that intuition, to that gut sense? Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, what we really want and how we achieve it are slightly different things. So let me just clarify what I think we want. I think you stated it well. What we want is to be able to take our yoga, whatever you call it, you could call it your exercise, you could call it your qigong, your meditation, your who knows what, you know, many different names for essentially the same principle. You know, if I have to, you know, call it a, a group name, I call it, Posture, movement, breathing, and mental control for health, happiness, and longevity. And so when we take those things, and people can just do walking every day or something like that, but what we want is the result of this practice should have a positive effect on the physical body, which is your muscles and joints, also a positive effect on the physiological body, which is your energy-based system in terms of blood flow, nerve flow, um, internal organ systems, et cetera, especially reproduction, digestion, immunity. And then also it should have a good positive effect on your mental body, your psychology. So the net result should be that you should maintain functional ability in your joints, be able to be strong enough to do the activities of daily life. You know, when I was younger, I was able to do sort of fairly fancy things. Now at 61, I'm just happy if I can walk, swim, climb, dance, and wrestle with my children. I don't need to do more than that. I'm happy I can do that. Um, so I'm taking more time to focus on my physiological body, which means I want to make sure I have lots of energy, 
and I'm able to respond appropriately to the environment around me. So that physiological thing is I want probably 90 to 90% dominance, 90 to 99% dominance of my parasympathetic nervous system. So I'm mostly in a state of parasympathetic dominance where I feel rest, rejuvenation, relaxation, regeneration, the internal organs of longevity are all working immune, digestive, reproductive to keep me you know, feeling young and regenerating my cells, fixing up damaged bits, regenerating bits that need regenerating, absorbing nutrients, etc. And um, reproductive system is funny. When I say reproductive system, many people think, you know, sex. Well, reproductive system is sex, and it's also good to have fertility. I don't want more children. I don't need as much sex as I used to when I was younger. You know, definitely, that's not as interesting anymore. But the thing is, the reproductive system is your regeneration system. You must keep reproducing cells. Your brain cells need to be reproducing till the day you die. And that's often forgotten. And that's only going to happen if your parasympathetic nervous system is dominant. But if your sympathetic nervous system dominates, that's the AKA, they say sympathetic nervous system is flight or fight response. I like to call it the flight, fight, freeze, and fear response. So you become unable to respond properly, you become terrified. And when that happens, it takes so much energy to run away from a perceived enemy. It takes so much energy to fight to perceived energy that your body goes on the equivalent of what the iPhone might have as a low power mode. So when your iPhone or Android phone or whatever you have runs out of power, it says low power mode, turn off non-essential functions like we don't need the compass, we don't need to analyze stocks and shares, just use it for the phone. And so our body's the same. When it comes to a state of flight or fight, where you go, we need all our energy for running away from the proverbial saber-toothed tiger that they told us about at high school. And so it says, we haven't got energy to digest food. We can't spare the energy to fix up your runny nose. We can't fix up, you know, we can't waste energy on producing new sex cells, reproductive cells, anything like that. So at that time then, not only do you, reduce your chance for working towards longevity and you know lose the effectiveness of these important uh, organs of longevity but also the dominant subconscious emotions become anger aggression lack of safety lack of trust in your environment and the people around you and everything else this is what we don't want but you need a little bit of sympathetic arousal you need a little bit because there are times in your life where you do need to respond quickly. And what I look for with that is I do it in two ways. I make it so my practice is predominantly going to only arouse my parasympathetic nervous system. What we want then is to slowly incorporate practices on our mat, which are predominantly feeling good while we're doing them, but just taking you a little bit to that edge and your practice should be, we have two extremes. One is you use your mat time to give yourself these semi-stressful, artificially induced practices, posture, movement, breathing, mental control, in a controlled environment. And your aim is to stay relaxed while doing them. And the, the easier it is to stay relaxed, the more you can intensify the practice. But the mistake modern people make is they intensify the practice and don't stay relaxed. So it's be relaxed and see how much stress you can take while staying relaxed. 
That's one side of your practice. Then the other side of your practice is do semi-boring situations in an artificially induced semi in, a, in an artificial environment we call a yoga practice and see how bored you how calm you can get without being bored and then practice oscillations between the two when you can do this in life in your mat it comes to your life you know so then you might find yourself like i do often as many people say to me how come you're so chilled out don't you get frazzled by everything that's going around you and i don't I, don't, I very rarely get frazzled, you know. Um, once you can work with your physiology to, to, you know, to get this happening, your mental body starts to work better as well. But it's also important to have a little bit of overriding mental control. And the mental control is like I was saying what my mother told me, that happiness is a choice, not something you wait for. That basically it's a flick of a switch in the brain. And a good mentor for me, because I talk about my, my teachers, my yoga teachers from all over the world, but a really good mentor for me is Bruce Lipton, who wrote the book some people know called Biology of Belief. And I think I mentioned I was doing molecular biology, genetic engineering when I was in my 20s. And he's, I think Bruce is about 12 or 13 years older than me. And I've had the honor and privilege of meeting him many times and teaching at similar conferences to him. And, you know, we chat uh, behind stage and it's, he's a wonderful man. But his whole uh, paradigm is one that the genes of our body are not the controllers of the body. And in fact, uh, the brain of the cell is not the actual nucleus, which is what most people think. The brain is actually related to the membrane of the body. And the membrane is the outside of a cell. And that's what actually interacts with the environment. And for our own, our own bodies, it's like we have the skin, its ability to touch, sense temperature, our ability to see, hear, and then communicate outwards with gestures like posture, movement, breathing, talking, etc. And so this outside layer of our body, that in a way is our controlling brain. And so what we want somehow is to recognize that really what we think is our environment is actually no different to our thinking brain to what we perceive is our environment. So he uses this lovely analogy where he said, look, there's the snake that comes into someone's garden and the mother is terrified of snakes. She grabs the child, and the young child sort of in and around, the mother screaming, snakes, snakes, and the child is terrified of snakes for the rest of her life. That same snake crawls to a hole in the fence to the next door neighbor who's a herpetologist, a mother who studies snakes, she picks up the same snake, calls the child over, look at this beautiful green tree snake. It's so lovely. The child goes, oh, wow, it's like silky soft. And the same environmental stimulus can trigger a different response in two people, depending on how the brain overrides it. And so our perceived environment not only can be our choice, but also it affects your genetics. So a, a good uh, example, for example, is... Well, I mean, just the one about the snakes, you can imagine that the child who's terrified is going to stimulate adrenaline, cortisol, endorphins, all these drugs in the body, which are the drugs of the fight or fight response. Whereas the, the other child will get the chemicals being produced in the body, the anandamine, the lovely, you know, anandamide rather, and all these beautiful chemicals of love and peace and oxytocin and stuff like this. And so the way you think will affect the expression of genes. And how you think is up to how you choose to think. And like with our 
Bodies also you can, um, you know, create saliva consciously, but saliva will happen automatically as soon as you smell nice food. But any of us could try the experiment of just like close the eyes and just imagine the tastiest food you've ever had. See it in your mind's eye. Pick it up with your mind's hand. Bring it to your mind's nose. Smell it. Then without moving your real mouth, put it in your imaginary mind's mouth and taste it. And before you know it, you've started to salivate by a perception of an environment that was just a figment of your imagination. In other words, our belief is going to affect our physiology and what we choose to believe is our freedom of choice. And so this is really the, the most important lesson, I think, of yoga, that happiness is a choice, not something you wait for, that you can choose misery. When my dad died, he said to me, son, I don't want you miserable after I die. He says, if you want to mourn, two days maximum. And I respected that and I was miserable for two days. And he died about four years ago. My mother died this time last year. And again, I was you know, sad to see her go, but I, I don't uh, become miserable because of it. You know, it's, it's just one of those things in life, you know? So um, I think that what we've got to do then is recognize we've got a physical body, a physiological body and a mental body. Know that they all interact with each other. If your physical body feels good, you tend to feel better. Energy works better, your mind feels better. If your energetic body is good, then you tend to work better with your physical body and your mind is clearer. If your mental body is good, you can override the whole lot. But the funny thing is, in the world we live in today, people don't appreciate the importance of the physiological body and the mental body. And look at the way it is in modern yoga. What do most people care about? Muscles and bones, the shape, the outer look of the posture. Many people are often pushing the mentality of no pain, no gain, survival of the fittest, this nonsense Darwinian notion that was part of a political movement in the 17th century for dominating countries in the world, like Great Britain. You know, nature works by cooperation, not by survival of the fittest. So what we want is to find our own way of cooperating within our own bodies. And what we want is to have this feeling within our body that we've got the anatomy working well, the physiology working well, and the mental body working well, but it has to happen in four time zones. It's not an end goal orientated thing because too often we're always looking for the end result. Whereas yoga is not about the destination, it's about the journey. This I think is a really important thing that when you're practicing yoga on your mat, you're not doing it for some end goal, not for strength or flexibility. You're doing it to feel good while you're doing it. You're giving yourself love. You are giving yourself love. I often say to people in my class, you probably heard me say it before, I said, make the practice feel like you're in a warm bath being massaged by someone who really loves you. Loving ourselves is not something which is selfish. It is our duty. I think of it like aeroplane yoga. When they say to you, in case of emergency, when the oxygen mask comes down, put the mask on yourself first not your child, not your friend, because unless you look after yourself, how can you be of service to others? So it's really important you make sure that you give love to yourself. And by giving love to yourself first, you're doing a lot of good because you, what you're doing is not so much getting the benefit of getting love. That's a byproduct. What you're doing is practicing giving love. Because you see, you have to practice giving love, really. We're not very good at it. 
And, you know, I made the mistake, for example, one day of hopping on a bus in Sydney and smiling at the bus driver. He goes, what the fuck are you looking at? And I went, uh, sorry, I was just smiling. He didn't want me smiling at him. Not everyone wants you to hug them, especially nowadays. You're not allowed to hug people. You have to ask, do you do hugs? Do you shake hands? Maybe. So you have to check out who is going to accept your love. So what we do is we practice giving love to ourselves. And then you know you know what it's like to give love. Also, you start looking like a person who likes to receive love. And then you do a favor to other people who also want to give love and they don't know who to give it to. And they see you and they go, he looks like he likes receiving love. Let's give some love to him. And so everyone wants to give love. Everyone likes receiving love, but they actually like giving it more. So I say practice giving love on the only person you have the right to experiment on. That's yourself. All your practice should be about giving love to yourself. And if you're intelligent, you do it in such a way that actually the end result as a byproduct means that what you were doing in the activity of giving yourself love was something which was balanced and gives a balance between the physical benefits, physiological benefits, and mental benefits. So at the end of the time you're doing your practice, you actually go, oh, my joints feel stronger, but I didn't feel tension. My joints are more flexible, but I didn't feel like I was stretching. My blood flow has increased, but my heart wasn't racing. My nerves feel really calm, but I didn't have to lie down to do that. I've got lots of energy, but I didn't have to breathe much to do that. And so you're actually feeling really calm, really loved, but somehow it actually made your body stronger, more fit, more flexible. How do you do that? Well, that's the science of what I'm learning and teaching. And I've been working on it for decades, and I've got a fairly good system now about how to do what I've just said. Basically, the art of in your practice as a model for how you are in the world to share good energy and loving information inside your body. And perhaps the quickest tip to say is stop blocking it. And what blocks good energy and loving information inside your own body, where the good energy is good healthy circulation with low heart rate, loving information is a parasympathetic dominance, is stop blocking that with overtension overstretching or inappropriate postures like sitting on chairs 15 hours a day, over breathing, overthinking, and overeating. If you want to just feel better in your life, tense less, stretch less, breathe less, think less, eat less. And that's how I bring it into my daily life. So the other thing that I find is a really useful thing to do is to make connections and access your unconscious mind. So the unconscious mind contains a whole bunch of really stupid programs. Some of them we've written ourselves consciously, but most were written for us by our parents, by our school teachers, by our friends, and not all of them are positive. And one of my you know, moments that I think was life-changing for me as a teenager, and I think you know, it was affected by various types of plant medicine I had when I was younger. Basically, it was the idea that who am I and what parts of me did I choose? What parts did other people choose? And one of the first things that I did was go through all the habits that I have and say, am I doing this because I chose it or did someone choose it for me? And I don't mind if it was a good thing, but if it didn't make any sense, then I just threw it out. Like wearing clothes to go for a swim. Why would you wear clothes? in a beach 
when you wouldn't wear clothes into the shower or a bath. So I stopped wearing clothes when I was uh, at the beach and things. Uh, promptly at age 20, they arrested me, of course, locked me up for a day. I had to go to a court and face this charge that Simon Borg lived in a public place to a Thompson's baby had in such a manner as to cause reasonable persons, justifiably in all circumstances, to be seriously alarmed and affronted. And I stood up in front of the magistrate and said, look, you know, I admit that I was naked on the beach, but I didn't alarm and affront anyone. I said, you see more than the naked bottom on the six o'clock news. And they threw it out of court. And then I realized that actually you just got to speak up. And if you really want to express yourself in life, just speak your mind, speak it lovingly, speak it nicely. And we all have our rights and we shouldn't be imposed upon by these thoughts that are put into us, especially the things like many you know, people go, I'm just not lovable or, you know, I'm never going to succeed in life. Why? Because some school teacher may have seen them, you know, doing something like sticking a chewing gum under the desk. No one's ever, ever going to love you if you stick chewing gum under your desk. You're never going to be successful in life. And that six-year-old scar stays with you all of your life. So these unconscious programs, which are deep in our unconscious, we have to somehow erase the ones we don't want, rewrite new ones. But to do it, you have to access your unconscious. And there are four ways of accessing the unconscious. One is by getting both left and right side of brain working at the same time, often with dominance with left brain, some people dominant right. And that comes with various yoga practices, including alternate nostril breathing, including doing symmetrical postures. Also, when you work with spinal reflexes, the reflexes are part of your unconscious. So when you learn to control these key spinal reflexes, like the stretch reflex, the reciprocal reflex, the, the opposite of the, re, the relaxation reflex called inverse myotatic reflex, these things can help you access the unconscious. And the other thing is understanding blood flow. If you can really get blood to move through the body, blood contains not just energy, but information. And finally, the, probably the most important one is this thing which I call the 12 bridges between conscious and unconscious. And what you often hear in yoga classes, spirituality classes, new age classes, is breathing is the link between body and mind. Breathing is the link between conscious and unconscious, but it's not the breathing. It's the diaphragm. The diaphragm is a muscle in your body which you can control either consciously by just going breathe into the abdomen. The diaphragm works. But when you're asleep, in your most regenerative cycle, sleep, diaphragm works by itself. But there are 12 important places in the body which have dual control. And the most commonly known is the diaphragm. But it's not about breathing, it's about deep, deep breathing. And deep breathing is not chest breathing. Deep is deep into your body around the pelvic floor. That's where you should feel the first part of your breath. All these 12 places, including the diaphragm, if you can touch them, connect with them, resonate with them in your practice, you automatically reset to the state that your nervous system really should be at the time. And most of the time, we should be in a state of rest, rejuvenation, relaxation, regeneration. Most of the panic people experience are not real saber-toothed tigers, like they told us at school. See, everyone was told about the sympathetic nervous system. In primitive cave times, there was saber-toothed tigers and people had to use sympathetic nervous system. And now people go, well, there are no saber-toothed tigers. But I always say, I have saber-toothed children, saber-toothed mortgage over my head, saber-toothed relationships. And these things cause so much stress. So you have to learn to recognize that that stress is in your head and you can shift it. And one of the best ways of shifting it, and I've used this with people who are suicidal, 
massively depressed, totally in trauma, you say to them, lengthen your fingers, move the fingers. Move your shoulders apart, roll the shoulders. Lengthen your neck, just gently move the neck, free it up. Then relax your pelvic floor, move your pelvis in. Lengthen your lower back, just breathe into the abdomen. Then relax your face by blinking, move your jaw, move your lips, and instantly, especially if you do it in detail and slower than I did it then, it calms people down and it resets the nervous system and allows them to go, do I need to be stressed? Well, look around, it's actually, there are no tigers. And then you start to access your life. Sorry, I talk too much. You should also talk occasionally. It's conversational. You're wonderful. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about this in such great detail because you have such a, a grasp over this in a way that isn't always understood in the mainstream and in what we're told. And a lot of what I'm hearing is that the threats that we perceive are external. They are created by our minds through these processes of conditioning and these beliefs that we hold. And then your nervous system gets triggered by something. So Susan could say something that would then spiral you back into reliving that pattern of belief that you had from when you were seven years old. And that through coming back to yourself, through all of these practices, through connecting with the diaphragm and the 12 bridges and the regular yoga practice and being with yourself, we're reclaiming our power. And I loved what you were saying about you know, happiness is a choice. And a big part of the work that I do, especially is talking about personal responsibility and you take radical personal responsibility. I love that list of going through things. Like, is this mine? Does this feel authentic? Is this the way that I actually want to live in the world? Or is this something that I have become accustomed to doing? And you know, belief is this, feeling of certainty that we've created that's it it's just a feeling of certainty created by our minds but then that becomes the dictation for our life and I always experience this whenever I drop back into my body into my breath into my yoga practice everything's quiet you know it's like most of our inspiration comes from the shower because it's those rare moments as you're moving through your day that you just surrender so I guess the last question that I have for you is what does living with an open heart mean to you? What does living with an open heart mean to me? Because all of these practices are, as you've talked about, are able to, to increase our compassion for ourselves. As you said so, so beautifully, the, the love we learn to give ourselves and receive opens the heart and then it changes the way we move through the world and we can find ourselves through the self-care and yeah. the self-love, then being yeah. able to give more. So I would just love to hear what it means to you in your life and in your experience. Oh, bless you. You know, when we look at the idea of what does having an open, what does having an open heart mean to me? Like, it's like the heart has got this dual function in our mythology, in our day-to-day -day mythology. One, it's this pump, supposedly. And it's meant to pump blood, energy, information through our body. And the other thing is to do with this loving thing. And really, what we want, according to all the yogas of the world, is to keep the heart rate as low as possible. Keep it working as little as possible. Because really, it's not the heart that is the expression of love. It's our whole body that has to radiate love. So in my physical practice, I turn my entire body into one large pump. And I minimize the use of the physical heart. And, you know, in simple movements that I've done with you, like, which some of them to some people look like Qigong or whatever, 
I'm finding simple movements will make the left side of my body become firm and compressed, while simultaneously the right side of my body is lengthened and relaxed. And then I switch sides, right side firm and compressed, left side lengthened and relaxed. And it's done like that simple Qigong exercise where you imagine you're holding a ball and turning from one side to the other side, turning the ball upside down, a combination between twisting and side bending. <laughs> but just this, if done properly, and you really feel relaxation, then I've shown on a infrared camera, because I worked for a while at RMIT University, I still officially have a position there, but I haven't been there for a year or so, is that with the infrared camera, you can actually see that the part of your body that's compressed physically and also tense muscularly becomes colder. Colder means because there's less blood there. Like when you squeeze a sponge, it pushes the water or the air out of it. When you expand a sponge, water or air comes in. So if you make one side of your body tense and compressed and the opposite side lengthened and relaxed, there's a neurologic connection, neurologic connection between the two that's affected by the diaphragm as well, which we we'll go into another time perhaps. But the temperature of the compressed tense part is about 32 degrees. The temperature of the length and relaxed part is 37 degrees. And I've found that once I'm in the swing of it, I can change one side to the other within two or three seconds. So with that simple set of movements, my left side becomes 32 degrees, my right side 37, right side 32 degrees, left side 37. And so what happens is you can see that blood is being pumped from one side of the body to the other. And if the whole body is doing that movement of pumping, what does the heart have to do? Chill out, have a good time. They say the yogi counts their life, not by the number of years they live, but by the number of beats their heart makes, by the number of breaths they take. And so the heart often is misunderstood in the West. And what you often hear in the world of exercise is got to get your heart rate up, got to breathe more. But actually, logically, we know that fit people are the ones who run fast, hardly breathe at all, and have heart rate very, very low. And the unfit people are ones who hardly move at all, but their heart rate's racing and their breath is racing. So I encourage anyone listening to this, go, what you want is good circulation without increased heart rate. What you want is good energy without increased breathing. The less you breathe, the healthier it is. Of course, it's good to use your muscles of breathing, but all you have to do for that is just move your trunk. Stop locking your core, move your core, move the whole trunk move your spine. Breathing happens by itself. And when you master natural breathing, then you can maybe think about progressing to the supernatural things that people promise in the, in the Tibetan text, in the Hatha Yoga text, in the you know, sutras, etc. But often we think that we're going to do something that make us a super athlete or a super yogi. Recognize that we are normal people living in a very unnatural world. And for most people, the best step we can make to stop living normally and to start reliving naturally. Move naturally, breathe naturally, act natural, live naturally. And then we've got a possibility of maybe going to supernatural. But normal is so far away from supernatural. You need to go normal to natural. And if you just get to natural, and wouldn't it be nice to be as natural as children are? Already we'd be much younger. You know, so this is the physical side of it. You must make 
the physiology match the idea of what's going on mentally. And once you start being able to live a life where your physical heart is working less and your whole body turns into one big pump, that energy, which is pumping through the blood, through the blood vessels rather, you start to feel it coming out to your fingertips. So I can see in my infrared camera, for example, that when my hand is open, my hand gets hot. When my hand makes a closed fist, it gets cold. It's like opening and closing a sponge. But if I pull with my hands, not only does it feel like I'm sucking in energy to my hands, and if I push with my hands, it feels like I'm pushing energy out. So you start to feel an electromagnetic nature to your body that actually your body goes beyond your skin. And you know they know now that you know the heart generates a very large electromagnetic field relatively. And so does the brain. The whole body does. So can you magnify this? And then you recognize that actually it's not a coincidence that people, almost everyone has the sensation sometimes of someone's looking at me. I can feel someone else's energy. People can feel each other's energy. So what we want is to send out good energy. And this comes from the physical practices we do, but also our intent. So for me, I always try and see the good in people. And if for some reason I feel something's not right about them, I give them a second chance and a third chance. You know, I saw tapas in action with the mother of my children, Victoria, bless her, you know, because in, for me, the idea of resonating with what the heart does is an understanding of yama and niyama, the first two limbs of Ashtanga yoga. And one of the ones that's a little bit hard to reconcile is this idea of tapas. And tapas is a niyama, which some people think is arjya, hardship. Ayenga, BKS Ayenga, who I learned so much from over the years, he said it's about passion. It's the passionate desire to do your best. And so sometimes I get men to do this because they understand the best, I think, at this point, because they don't understand, because we don't understand. I said, I'd like you to sit in an uncomfortable position, like on the floor or on a chair, and then I want you to twist your body to the left side, then take your right hand, grab your left nipple, squeeze it hard, and yank it up and down nonstop for 45 minutes. After do that, have a break, then do the other side for 45 minutes, and repeat this eight times a day. Then you'll understand what tapas is. It's the passionate desire to do something in servitude of the child that was part of you. It grew inside you, it manifested inside you. You were the goddess that made it. Women are the goddesses and men have to learn to become like the goddesses. Appreciate that we are also the creators of life, but we have to treat people in that way. So the model of a mother and how she treats a child with that servitude, imagine doing that back and forth. Whoa, that's intense. I saw Victoria do it. She did it, she breastfed first after a nine month intense labor, uh, tolerating me first, nine months intense labor, then two and a half years breastfeeding, then next child, pregnant for nine months and the difficulty of that, then another two and a half years of breastfeeding. I think that that, is an expression of love that you don't get in the world. But you see, woman has it in her always. And if she's not a mother to one, she can be a mother to everyone. And I think that is a model to resonate with. All of us should be parents to everyone. 
And the parent, unfortunately, is a one-way love street. When you see the mother loving the child, the child doesn't always love them back. A little bit here and there. You know, our kids are like 18 and 15 now. And they're not always the best children. I wasn't the best child. I got to about 35, 40 and realized the importance of giving the love back. And, you know, as the years went on, I'm learning more and more. And I'm still no master. But the importance of actually just really understanding that yama is not a bunch of don't do's. Because often we have this poor translation of the words yama and niyama, where yama is things like non-violence, non-stealing, non-lying, no sex, no attachment. That's what they're translated. Right? It's like ahimsa is literally translated incorrectly as non-violence. Asteya, incorrectly translated, but in the textbooks, as non-stealing. Aparigraha, incorrectly translated as non-attachment. Was actually the real translation, and I think any Sanskrit scholar would agree with me, a does not mean non. It's a poor translation. The word a means opposite of. So opposite of violence is gentle. Opposite of stealing is not non-stealing. It's giving. Opposite of attachment is not non-attachment. It's being free. You're not stuck to something, you're free. Can you imagine the young mother with the baby looking at it going, I'm not going to be violent with you. I'm not going to steal from you. I'm not going to be stuck. I'm not going to let you get stuck. It's like, no, I'm going to give you gentleness. I'm going to give you balance, loving connection. I'm going to give you freedom. That's what you want for your child. And these things are the true expression of love. If you live with yama and niyama, and you recognize brahmacharya, brahmacharya is a big one. Brahmacharya is not no sex. I told you I had a Tibetan Lama. Tibetan Lama taught me Tantra. He said, celibacy? Celibacy? He said, why celibate when you can give it away for free? And of course, it was a silly pun, joke. But the point is, Brahmacharya is as much about no sex as Ahimsa is about nonviolence. It's not non-violence, it's the exact opposite of violence. So what's brahmacharya? The exact opposite of the most inappropriate type of physical interaction. So what's the exact opposite of that? It's the most loving possible connection two consciousnesses can ever have. So what really is brahmacharya? It's about making loving connection. And so what we really want is to express that yama is about making a gentle, balanced giving of nourishing, loving communication and freedom. Niyama is about making a passionate inner quest to remove the obstacles of happiness, which is always a choice, and loving connection, which is the Ishvara Pranidhan. And I could go into more detail about that, but when you live with yama and niyama, then you recognize that the way to appreciate the recognition of true yoga, which is that for me, yoga is the recognition that we're all connected as one consciousness, that our individual consciousness is connected as one, and you have to live it. And to live it, maybe the best way of doing it is appreciating the big questions in life that Svadhyaya offers. Svadhyaya is this niyama, which is this thing they call self-study. And when they talk about Svadhyaya, they talk about two types of knowledge. 
They say there's really important knowledge, the big questions like who are you, where'd you come from, why are you here, where are you going, and the not so important other knowledge like nuclear physics. But the really big questions are the ones we should be addressing. Who are you? I am a manifestation of universal consciousness, having an experience in this wonderful body I've been given as a gift. Why am I here? Well, to appreciate maybe that we're all connected as one. You know, and in that case, live it. So the purpose of my life, you can ascribe any purpose, but my purpose, and anyone can take this if they want, is to be here to enjoy my life. Because if I enjoy it and I'm feeling good, I can actually do a better job in this world. So I have three things. I say, enjoy your life, look after your body, because it's your temple. It's the only one we've got. And when you enjoy your life and look after your body, you can help other people enjoy their lives, look after their body, and then you make an impact in your life. If you don't enjoy your life, you're a shit model for everyone else in the world. If you don't look after your body, you've got nothing to help other people with. So it's not selfish to enjoy your life. It is our duty, like getting on a plane and putting a mask on first. And when you enjoy your life, look after your body, you can help other people enjoy their lives. And then we can live in this ocean of love that we are living in and be actually a potent power. Simon, thank you for your wisdom. Where can we find you? Where can people reach you? How can people connect with you? Oh, if you want to go to simonborgolivia.com, it's my personal website. So you can write to me at simon at simonborgolivia.com. But the other place to go, if you like good yoga, then what Bianca and I have created, I think, is you know pretty much the best thing that I can teach and do based on everything we've learned from our great yoga teachers, from our understanding as exercise-based physiotherapists. And our company is called Yoga Synergy. We run online teacher training. We run uh, online courses of many different types, therapy, etc. And, you know, uh, I'm still actively participating with Bianca. She is an amazing person. She's a brilliant physiotherapist. She's an incredible yoga teacher. You can find me on Facebook by my name. You can find me on Instagram at Simon Synergy. And anyone listening to this, I've known this beautiful host of ours for so many years. And I have so much respect for what you do, what you share, how you've been in my life for the last, it's close to getting close to 10 years, I think by now. Amazing teacher amazing practitioner i've got first-hand knowledge of, of your teaching and your abilities and i would highly recommend your work to anyone and you could come back and teach in my school any day i would be honored to have you and jeffrey anytime come back bless you guys thank you for being here with us today with myself and simon borg olivia i'm jesse galvin and this is the open heart rebellion